Well, it looks like we have almost made it one month into 2022 before the world is going to end. It's kind of a record for us um, to, to not have an immediate world ending event at the start of the year in light of more like recent political and global events. Yeah, I suppose compared to the last couple of years, this isn't bad, but it's been a good run. Um, indubitably afterlife edition coming soon, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are, of course, talking about the impending war, World War III between the Western world and Russia over Russian interest in the, and I suppose Western interest in the country of Ukraine. Yeah, recently tensions seem to be escalating over a situation that already had quite a bit of tension in it already. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing Russian troops amassing along the Ukrainian border and the continuation of a lot of conjecture about what Russia will do if they decide that they need to seize more of Ukraine than they already have. Yeah. And the response so far to try and prevent Russian seizitude, seizure, I don't know what the word is, has been uh, President Biden suggesting, among other things, sanctions targeted towards Vladimir Putin, who, if you aren't aware, is the shirtless bear riding through the river leader of Russia. We'll include that picture. He was on a horse. No, there's a picture of him on a bear. Okay. Well, I'll include the picture when we post this this episode on our Facebook uh, (laughs) and our Twitter. So if you want to see one of the world's preeminent leaders riding shirtless through a river on the back of a brown grizzly bear, Make sure to follow us at Indubitably Pod on either Facebook or Twitter. Now I'm going to follow to see that picture because I don't believe it. And... <laughs> <laughs> you better already be following. Um, I might be. All right. Uh, so today we are going to talk about not shirtless bear riding leaders, but sanctions and when they've been used and potentially do we think they'll be effective when used in this particular instance. Sanctions are a pretty broad topic because they employ a lot of different tactics and a lot of different ways in which countries or organizations can actually implement them. So we'll try to make sure that it doesn't get too wild with explaining when they've been used and how countries have actually used them before. But essentially, it is some sort of tool to affect the behavior of another actor, whether to try to persuade them to do something or not do something, or to actually incapacitate them from doing something that a neighboring country or global organization would prefer that they're not doing. Yeah, essentially, they're an economic attack, I suppose, uh, which is typically preferable to a military attack when one country or world organization, the UN, the WTO, the EU, whoever, wants to influence the behavior of another country. Mm -hmm. They are typically utilized when a country is threatening another country to preserve some sort of global stability between international partners. I.e. Russia and Ukraine. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or they can sometimes be utilized when countries themselves are doing something terrible to their own citizens, which we've seen and we'll have some more examples of in the future, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a tool as opposed to hard power, which is typically military power. 
Uh, this would be considered soft power along with the even softer power of diplomacy. Um, and they can come in various forms. You could have economic sanctions, things like trade barriers, tariffs, disinvestment, restrictions on specific financial activities, embargoes would be another example. Right. And there's even the use of financial transaction sanctions, meaning governments preventing banking institutions from doing business with specific countries, which is more of a modern, uh, I guess, post 9-11, I'm considering to be modern, even though that's 20 plus years ago. Um, <laughs> but the United States has a lot of capital markets in it, which means that's an effective tool for an economic power such as this one to use to influence behavior. That's like asymmetrical sanction. Right. A, similar to asymmetrical warfare that's become the standard now. Right. <laughs> Um, there's also diplomatic sanctions, so things like the removing of embassies, withdrawing from talks, recalling ambassadors, or one specifically that we've talked about on the podcast before, the U.S. diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Chinese Winter Olympics, which is coming up. And on that note, if you're interested in hearing about Olympics and protests and athletes protesting, that's going to be our next episode. So look for that one week after you are listening to this. And another form of sanctions uh, is military sanctioning, which is more of the incapacitation type of sanction. So restricting access to arms via trade or blocking access to materials used for developing weapons or things along those lines. Mm -hmm. And typically sanctions are going to come paired with other strategies as well. It's, it's rare that a sanctions is going to be imposed by itself. Uh, so most commonly, they can be partnered with incentives for a kind of carrot slash stick approach. In addition to having kind of the gentler carrot and stick approach, there is more of the emphasis sometimes on the fact that there is a stick waiting if the country doesn't take the carrot. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> the, the implication being if the sanctions don't work, if our diplomatic avenues and these other measures don't work, a lot of the countries who are trying to exert power over international actors will go to war if they have to. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, this is, this is to show you that we're willing to take action we're serious enough about this to, to sacrifice something. And um, the implication there is that we would, we would be willing to sacrifice more if you don't stop now. Mm -hmm. So how are these supposed to work? How are sanctions supposed to work when implemented correctly? A lot of times a country's policies are established with the goal of economic development or generation of regional slash global soft power. And if the losses that they would incur from sanctions are greater than what they stand to gain from whatever action it is that they're taking, then they should be dissuaded from continuing that action. That's the theory. But, you know, to be honest, most of the time, the theory doesn't seem to play out in reality, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But why don't we start the episode with an example of where sanctions were effective to show what they can accomplish when utilized correctly. A great example of this would be the sanctions that were placed on South Africa to help influence the end of apartheid. And just a very brief history of what happened in South Africa between 1948 and the early 1990s, South Africa had the institutionalized racial segregation system known as apartheid. 
And in that system, policies were designed to ensure the nation's minority white population stayed in control politically, economically, and socially. So that included things like prohibiting marriage, interracial marriage, um, sexual relationships across racial lines, and forcing people of different races to live in segregated neighborhoods. Yeah, the, uh, the rest of the world wasn't super thrilled about this. And so to pressure South Africa to end these policies, implemented a series of sanctions and divestment against them. This was carried out by the United States, the United Kingdom, and a coalition of 23 other nations. I wonder if the pop stars in the 80s who were singing to end apartheid still feel like they, you know, were responsible for the end of it. But it (laughs) sounds like the sanctions might have been the more effective tool. We did say that sanctions usually come with other tools and clearly rock concerts. We didn't mention it in the (laughs) beginning. I thought it went without saying. Rock concerts are always an implied diplomatic tool. Exactly. (laughs) The the biggest of our soft power tools. (laughs) Um, So these sanctions took place in the late 80s. And to give a sense of scale, the South African government lost over 1 billion US dollars, while at the same time dealing with 15% yearly inflation. Uh, For a little bit of contrast there, last year, the United States inflation hit 7%, which was the highest in 40 years. So as a result of these sanctions, South Africa's inflation was over double of what we are currently complaining about in the United States. So what was the effect of all of those sanctions and the resulting economic hardship that South Africa experienced when sanctions were implemented? In 1990, the African National Congress, which is Black Nationalist and Social Democratic Political Party, was unbanned. Its leader, Nelson Mandela, was released from prison. And subsequently, there were democratic elections held in 1994. And for a fun fact, if you want to look really closely at our logo, one of the news articles that makes up our logo is Nelson Mandela being released from prison. So bust out your microscope on your phone screen and see if you can find that. In 1994, Nelson Mandela was elected as president. Mm, And when subsequently he he stood in front of the United Nations uh, to address them as the president of South Africa, uh, he said, quote, we stand here today to salute the United Nations organization and its member states, both singly and collectively, for joining forces with the masses of our people in a common struggle that has brought about our emancipation and pushed back the frontiers of racism. And so uh, Nelson Mandela on several occasions credited the sanctions that were placed on the former government and the apartheid regime of his country, credited those sanctions for bringing about the change that resulted in him being elected president. No mention of concerts. No, what a hater. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, South Africa also made another noteworthy move. In 1989, it became the first and to this day only country that has built its own nuclear weapons and voluntarily given them up. Mm-hmm. There, there have been a couple of countries that post-Soviet countries, which we'll talk about uh, when we get to Russia and the Ukraine, uh, post-Soviet countries that had nuclear weapons uh, as a result of their Soviet history that gave them up, one of which was Kazakhstan, which I just like to reference every time I can because of Borat. But uh, South Africa is the only one that has developed its own weapons and given them up. 
Prior to 1989, South Africa had constructed six nuclear weapons, but then it did dismantle them and signed the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. And, and I think this is important to note because as we move on in the episode, nuclear weapons are a huge consideration for the imposition of sanctions. To be blunt, in South Africa, there were certainly other considerations at play, motivating them to give up their program. Um, rock concerts being one, um, but including the spread of communist influence on the continent and the impending power shift over to the African National Congress. But it would certainly be hard to argue that sanctions played no role in this decision. Right. And in light of that, I think it's important that we then talk about what are the factors that make a sanction successful? What are the things that actually ensure that sanctions work when trying to influence the behavior of other countries? Mm -hmm. And I think there's three key considerations in making sanctions work. The first one uh, is a little bit strange, but sanctions work better between friends than enemies. Uh, Second of all, sanctions have to be bold. They actually have to have an impact. You can't like withhold $5 from a country and expect them to change their attitudes or policies. And third, they have to be uh, multilateral. It's it's not very effective if one country tries to impose sanctions and then others provide options for investment for country X that's being sanctioned to get around. Let's look at all of those in more detail, starting with the one that does sound the most counterintuitive of them all, which is that sanctions seem to work best between friends instead of between enemies. Yeah, I, I, typically you would think, all right, if there's a country whose attitudes or policies you need to change, you're probably not getting along with them very well. But that's not always the case. And in fact, to look at the South African example, um, prior to sanctions in the 60s, South Africa was experiencing massive economic activity and investment from the West, the United States, France, and the United Kingdom specifically. And those well-developed relationships and that influx of economic activity made it possible for the sanctions to have the type of impact that they did. Mm -hmm. Allies do want to preserve relationships in a way that other countries may not want to. So the sanctions can be seen as a step towards creating the outcomes that they're looking for without actually being openly aggressive. And that does not always happen when it's two countries that are not allies and they may escalate much more quickly to a much more openly hostile relationship. Yeah, I, I guess for an analogy, you know, think about if you've got a friend, just because you're friends with somebody doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. But if you get in a fight with a friend, you're much more likely to try and work through it than if you get in a fight with somebody you already don't like. Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> I just, I'm just going to not have to deal with them ever again. So on a international scale, I suppose it does make sense, even if it does seem counterintuitive at face value. Next, the sanctions need to be substantial. They need to be something that is actually going to be felt by the country that is being targeted. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes they need to be specific too. Let's look at specific industries that the country relies on and make sure that we're hitting those industries. The higher the cost of sanctions on the economy, the less likely that target governments can adjust their policies to evade the sanctions. Major economic dislocation puts subsequent pressure on leaders to concede to those sanctions in order to minimize the damage on their legitimacy 
and their capacity to rule. And leaders might even be more inclined to acquiesce if the immediate economic pain is felt significantly by powerful economic and political groups in their close ruling circle. Mm-hmm. And this is where sanctions aren't necessarily just levied on countries, but oftentimes they could be levied on specific individuals or specific industries as well. And in most countries that operate under an oligarchical, is that whatever the word is, a system of oligarchies, um, (laughs) this can be particularly effective. Uh, Countries like Russia or the United States, you know, as opposed to democracies. (laughs) Oh, we're going there, are we? (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be a socialist. Sometimes I can be too. I'm not a socialist. Sometimes I'm a socialist all the time. (laughs) All right, fair. I try to hide mine to keep the podcast seeming balanced. Okay. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so the third consideration here after let's be bold and let's be substantial with these sanctions is multilateralism. It's important to seek cooperation from other countries and international organizations. The higher the number of sanctioning countries, the greater the economic pain the targeted economies will face if they defy those sanctions. So again, in the example of South Africa, getting commitment from the United Kingdom, the United States, and 23 other nations ensures that South Africa was not able to simply just shift and find investment from other alternatives to maintain the kind of development that they've been experiencing pre-sanctions. And it is even better to impose multilateral sanctions under the auspices of international organizations to seek help in establishing mechanisms to monitor the enforcement of those sanctions. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where we mentioned oftentimes sanctions are coming from the United Nations, coming from the European Union, potentially the World Trade Organization, et cetera. So those are the things that are necessary for sanctions to work in theory. And there are cases from time to time, South Africa being one of them, where all of those factors come together and sanctions do seem to work out. But to be blunt, most of the time, these things don't work. Right. Uh, It's difficult to meet all of the conditions to make sanctions actually effective. Most of the time that a country is sanctioned, they typically are not allies. We can look to examples like Iran and North Korea for that. Uh, It's also hard to get buy-in from multinational coalitions, right? In an attempt to be multilateral, think about how often can we get the world to agree on something? Not very often. And if you can, it probably means that you're levying sanctions against somebody that's used to being ostracized. You mentioned North Korea, who we're about to discuss. They're kind of used to just being ignored or rejected by the international community. And if that's the case, sanctions aren't going to be super effective. And then last, it's hard to do something meaningful without damaging your own economy as well. Mm -hmm. It it has to be something that is so monumental that it's worth doing, even if it compromises your own well-being. And in the case of some of the countries we're going to be talking about, the, the damage that is inflicted by the actors is pretty substantial. And so it probably is worth it in the eyes of, you know, the European Union or the NATO or United States. Mm hmm. So let's move on to three of probably the most commonly thought of examples uh, when it comes to sanctions. And the first couple are going to be in contrast to the success that we had over the nuclear program in South Africa. So when we're talking about nuclear weapons, the first one we're going to talk about, probably no surprise, uh, is North Korea. And 
if you didn't guess North Korea, you probably guessed Iran. Which <laughs> I was is, about to say, there's a few others <laughs> that people might be thinking of. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that one next. So <laughs> I don't want you thinking you were wrong. Um, so just we have to talk about one first. So we're starting with North Korea. I think that we're probably all familiar with their nuclear program and their nutty ruling family, uh, currently led by Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of the country. And the U.S. has had sanctions on North Korea since literally the 1950s, and basically the entire world has had sanctions on them since about 2006, and specifically relating to their nuclear ambitions. Right. And as far as that goes, it does meet the multinational condition that we discussed earlier. They are comprehensive uh, sanctions. We have the United Nations and the EU placing arms embargoes. We have bans on international money transfers. We have raw material exports being sanctioned. We have limits on crude and refined oil imports. And we have repatriation of all North Korean nationals earning income abroad. However, with all of that taken into consideration, North Korea is still being, I'll use a fancy word here, bellicose. Mm, Indubitably. (laughs) Indubitably. Um, They've launched more ballistic missiles and weapons tests so far in 2022 than they did in all of 2021. And if you're listening to this episode later in the year, this is the end of January. (laughs) Damn it. So so what are we doing wrong? They met the conditions sanctions are supposed to work. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that what you brought up before, I think, feeds into the specific example. North Korea is used to being ostracized. This is nothing new to them to be under sanctions and to point to the West as aggressors against their right to exist and defend themselves as a country. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem with sanctions. It's kind of like grounding a child, right? Like first, all right, you're grounded for a day. And if the kid really digs in and I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. So, okay, you're grounded for a week or we're going to take all of your toys away. And when the kid is left with nothing but to like sit in a corner for a year, they don't have anything else to lose. So you're aware of how stubborn I was as a child, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, and this is why uh, I think that it's important as, as we talked about, it's important to also have a carrot approach to balance out with the stick. And uh, in the case of North Korea, at least, that seems to be missing. So even if a couple of the conditions for successful sanctions exist, there's certainly one big one that's lacking, and hence our continued failure in that situation. Clearly, in the example of North Korea, it's all stick, right? But there are other countries where we have imposed some sanctions, and we have had more of that balanced approach that you're talking about, and that would be going to our next example, which we previewed, Iran, Mm -hmm. which has a similar set of sanctions on it to North Korea with the uranium enrichment and weapons program that it has been pursuing, also being a focus of international concern. And so since 2006, also uh, similar to North Korea, the United Nations has been targeting oil, gas, as well as banking and insurance transactions from Iran. And unlike North Korea, there has been some movement. Uh, in 2015, there was a joint comprehensive plan of action, JICPOA, where they, it's not my fault. They thought of stupid words to put together. They should have thought of uh, yeah, what it was going to sound. Anyway, so uh, the JCPOA, where Iran agreed to dismantle much of its nuclear program and open its facilities to international inspection in exchange for 
billions of dollars of sanctions relief, i.e. the carrot. In 2018, Donald Trump unilaterally withdrew the U.S. from the JICPOA. <laughs> yeah, it's catching on. <laughs> um, reimposing sanctions on Iran. Additionally, he was putting pressure on allies to also increase the sanctions or reimpose the sanctions on Iran, or they would be risking financial isolation. Mm. And to be fair, if if you've decided that sanctions are the way to go, as we discussed, multilateralism is important. So you do need to get everybody on board, although uh, threatening all of your allies might not be the best way of going about doing that. I know. That seems to be a really constant refrain from Donald Trump's administration. If we hate these people, you all need to hate these people too. Is that your Trump impression? A little bit. Um, (laughs) So now moving to an equally ineffective government, just Mm. to keep the podcast unbiased, the (laughs) Biden administration is still trying to get Iran to come back into the deal. So the JCPOA is still around. Um, after Trump pulled out of it unilaterally, Biden is trying to get it reinstated. Uh, but Iran is saying that this time around, it wants the removal of the sanctions before it agrees to continue dismantling its nuclear program and opening up its facilities for inspection. That's fair, considering the U.S. broke the deal. But allowing Iran to engage in this kind of gamesmanship just gives them more and more time to further their nuclear program while inspectors aren't being allowed back in the country. Mm, And I think this comes to maybe another consideration with sanctions. They have to be consistent. If, If you have a country like Iran who is attempting to develop nuclear weapons and you're going to impose sanctions or have a deal for four years and they're like, all right, we'll put these efforts on pause. And then you're going to get rid of the deal for four years. And they're like, okay, here's our window. Let's go, go, go. You know, let's develop as much as we can before this happens again. And then you're going to let them go back and forth at the bargaining table saying, hey, you messed up and basically just stall things out. It's not like nothing's happening while they're stalling. You know, while these diplomatic meetings are taking place, I promise you there is an underground laboratory, James Bond style, somewhere in Iran that is trying to crank out their first, you know, official nuclear warhead. Starting to think the United States might not be that good at foreign policy. (laughs) Um, You know, not recently. (laughs) And so I think sanctions are a problematic tool in, in, in the case of nuclear weapons because they simply stall or slow down the process. There's, there's no guarantee of stopping the process. Furthermore, If the country is determined to pursue their nuclear program, they might be doing so in secret, (laughs) even even still. I mean, there are inspections. Um, We can all talk about what happened with Iraq, (laughs) Mm -hmm. with um, the United Nations, and then ultimately an invasion. Yeah, that brings up the question. uh, If if the sanctions aren't working, though, what else are we going to do? Uh, Iraq had, quote, weapons of mass destruction. So we were like, all right, let's invade them to, to get rid of those. That didn't go well. Did we find the nuclear weapons? Oh, they were every they were just all over the place. We we, you know, went, picked a few up, left. Now everything's fine there. Oh, it's perfect there. Mm-hmm. So to make sanctions have an effect, it has to be worth it for the country to follow whatever policy or stipulations the sanctioning bodies are laying down. 
And unfortunately, countries like Iran have placed such an insanely high value on the development of these weapons, it's hard to offer anything comparable. And this is especially considering, again, they don't have much to lose given that we have never had friendly relations or substantial trade to take away from them in the first place. An interesting comparison to this sort of situation would be what happened with Taiwan when that country or territory or island or whatever you want to categorize it as. We have an episode about this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, When Taiwan began to pursue its own um, weaponized nuclear capabilities in the 60s and the 70s. That included buying 100 tons of uranium from South Africa, which we discussed earlier. And in 1977, the United States, uh, looking to avoid escalating tensions in the Taiwan Strait, put pressure on Taiwan through a series of sanctions, and they abandoned their efforts. Yeah, and it's important to note that the United States and Taiwan were and are allies. The U.S. at the time literally had deployed its own nuclear weapons in Taiwan as part of the U.S.-Taiwan Defense Command. And so here... Taiwan's got something to lose. They, they, there's a relationship there that they value. The U.S. is sitting there with nuclear weapons ready to defend them already. So now they're asking themselves, is it worth it to try to pursue our own program, potentially succeed, potentially not, but then in the process lose this relationship we have that probably is going to be better at protecting us than we would be at protecting ourselves, to be perfectly honest. And nuclear proliferation is not the only reason that countries or international organizations will sanction an actor. Another common goal is regime change in a lot of instances. The Castro regime led Cuba for over 60 years, starting with Fidel and uh, now his brother Raul. We tried to remove Fidel by attempting assassination, uh, counter-revolution, including the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, and economic blockades, which have turned into a kind of joke at this point. Sanctions have literally been so ineffective that the only thing that got Fidel to leave office was dying at the age of 90. (laughs) And even that didn't change the regime because his brother took over right after. Yeah. Even even if the country is different, you'll notice a lot of similarities between this and the other countries we've mentioned. The first one being we've had sanctions in place for a long time. The United States first imposed an embargo on the sale of arms to Cuba in 1958 um, and expanded to virtually all exports in 1962. That is 60 years. Right. And and since then, the goal of moving Cuba away from communism and away from the Castro regime has made, um, let me do my math really quick, uh, zero progress. That was very difficult to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) I had to add, you know, like nothing happening, subtract it by nothing. (laughs) Did you divide by zero? Because that'll just throw you off completely. That's why it took me a little while. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do some (laughs) advanced calculations here. Um, And the, the problem in a situation like this is we're putting sanctions on a country, trying to target a regime. Nothing's happening to the regime. But at the same time, we are ensuring that the economy of that country is depressed. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the consequences trickle down to the least advantaged. And there are a couple of different ways in which that's bearing out in Cuba. In their food system, they have a rationing booklet called La Libreta 
Oh my God. My pronunciation of that was probably so good. La libreta. Okay. There you go. (laughs) Your French is good, but my Spanish is in fuego. I don't know. (laughs) In fuego. Okay. So residents can purchase subsidized food um, in specific quantities. And I looked this up and they get things like per month per person, three pounds of sugar, but 12 eggs. I don't even know. Like, do you just make candy for the month? I don't know. So food is available for purchase outside of this system, but since the food wouldn't be subsidized, the goods are typically too expensive for most Cubans to be able to purchase them. Additionally, Cuban refugees are increasing in numbers. There have been several waves of Cuban refugees coming to the United States, but in 2021, due to the fallout from COVID-19, the number of Cubans attempting to get into the United States increased 11-fold, and that was as of like July of 2021. So the conditions are deteriorating in the country in part to reduce financial support from Venezuela due to the, due to the collapse of its oil prices in 2014. Mm-hmm. And this is potentially one of the reasons that the sanctions aren't working uh, beyond just this is a regime that's used to being ostracized. The sanctions aren't multilateral enough. Uh, Cuba does have a partner in Venezuela who with their oil wealth, at least previously, was able to keep things stable in the country of Cuba to to the point that at the very least, the regime is able to maintain control. Uh, Mm -hmm. But this is is not unique to Cuba, where the people, the common people in the country are the ones that suffer as a result of the sanctions. Saddam Hussein lived pretty comfortably when we imposed sanctions on Iraq. The uh, Kim family in North Korea probably doing fine if the movie the interview is to be believed um so and the documentary the interview yeah, you mean the documentary sorry um and uh you know the the castro the castro regime is is doing fine in cuba so this is one of the if not the largest argument against sanctions is if the goal of the sanctions is at its core to improve the lives of people who are suffering underneath an oppressive regime if all you're doing is contributing to the suffering of those people, you might feel like a badass putting sanctions on the country, but you're not really doing much. Right. And an additional way that they can backfire is that there can be spin in the countries where the conditions are being really, you know, horribly affected by sanctions on the least advantaged people. The government and the media can say, the reason things are bad for you right now is because of the sanctions that have been put upon you by another country, not taking into account that it's probably a specific mechanism that the government tooled in order to make sure they don't bear any of the consequences of the sanctions. People are prohibited from seeing materials that tell them otherwise. And so they begin to believe that the UN is doing this to me or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's almost a definitive characteristic of some of these regimes. Almost without fail, in order to maintain control, one of the first things that has to be controlled is information. So when people are poor on the streets and there's a knowledge that sanctions are being placed on the Cuban people by the United States, it's not that difficult for the people in power, the Castros, to say, hey, we're the only reason you have what you do have. The United States is the reason that you're suffering. So as opposed to sanctions working to reduce the amount of control a particular regime has over a country. In fact, it might just be strengthening it. 
In recognition of the fact that sanctions seem to really not have been effective in the case of Cuba, the Obama administration eased restrictions opening up travel in 2014, which allowed a lot of people from the United States to visit Cuba for the first time and expose people living in Cuba to actual Americans rather than the version of Americans that they have been advised were how we all are by the Cuban government. That's really important. If the Castros are trying to run a narrative that people in the United States are suffering potentially even worse than we are in Cuba, they're all impoverished, they're shot by the police, their rights are taken away by their oppressive government. It's easy to believe that story until potentially you come across some of them in person, and then that narrative starts to break down. So we're recognizing that sanctions on Cuba haven't really been productive. We've seen that there have been presidential administrations that have relaxed on some of the restrictions to a degree. Why not just do away with sanctions altogether then? I think the problem that is as a country, we can be, the United States can be so jingoistic, right? Cuba's communist. Cubans are the bad guys. Cubans. Cubans are the bad guys. You know, the Castros are, are a power in the world that has to be annihilated. And of course, you know, the only way for that to happen is we have to be tough and we have to levy these sanctions on them. And Obama did face a lot of criticism that he was capitulating to one of the axis of evil when he decided to lessen the sanctions and and ease travel restrictions. It's interesting that we've placed no value in countries recognizing when there really needs to be a reversal of policy or a changing of their course. The value of consistency of policy is really interesting, especially considering that the United States seems to change its stance on a lot of things every other administration. But in in this case, everybody toes the line with the idea that the embargo has to stay in place regardless of who's in power, which is just bananas. It's not doing anything to change the regime whatsoever in this country. I'm just imagining that little kid that we've grounded and it's sitting in the corner with nothing, except now it's been like 50 years and he's grown up into like a senior citizen, but he's still in the corner and still not sure why he's there or or what to do differently. But he's been getting like chocolate bars from Venezuela. So he's been okay with the situation (laughs) in in the whole, the whole time that we think that we're punishing him. Mm. So a bunch of examples of mostly where sanctions are not working, but we're not sure what else to do. And we don't want to look like we're doing nothing. So sanctions is it. A couple of examples of where sanctions have worked. So definitely if we apply them to the right situation and enact them in the appropriate fashion, it is possible that sanctions can get the results that we want. So I think that leads us to the question that we're faced on the headline of most newspapers today, which, uh, bringing back to the beginning of the episode, Russia and the Ukraine, do we think that sanctions are an appropriate tool to be using in this situation? To briefly describe what's actually happening in regards to Russia and their relationship to Ukraine, post-Soviet Union Eastern Europe is a massive point of conflict between the West, uh, represented by NATO, and Russia. Russia seems to have decided that Ukraine is their red line, and so Russia has been amassing troops along the border, 
demanding that the NATO membership promise to Ukraine be rescinded. Yeah, that that I think is the major point of conflict here is that NATO is trying to expand. It's been expanding further and further east. And most recently, it seems to be no specific action has been taken, but it seems to be that Ukraine is the next place that NATO's going. And Russia just does not want NATO that close to its doorstep. So they've got a hundred thousand troops just parked on the border. They're denying that there's a plan to invade, but certainly that's the implication of putting half of your freaking army on on a border like that. Because of that, in addition to some of the standard types of sanctions that we've already talked about with, you know, financial institutions and all of those other types of things. Uh, President Biden has been threatening personal sanctions on Putin himself, which would be something like seizing his assets, barring travel to the United States so he couldn't come to Disneyland, Mm. Um, (laughs) things that would personally attack him rather than the country as a whole. So they couldn't trickle down to the, you know, impoverished people in the country in a way that they do in places like Cuba. Mm. And that's fine. But like we talked about it, at, at the same time that you're trying to avoid impacts to the general people, you're also not meeting one of the conditions we laid out, which was that they have to be substantial. And so targeting Putin's personal assets when the vast majority of his personal assets are not in the United States seems to be a bit of a useless gesture. Yeah, personal sanctions of Putin might have an effect if we actually were able to target his assets effectively, which it doesn't sound like we're going to be able to do. So other than that, the only real option for sanctions is a continuation of what has always been done in regards to Russia, which has generally been pretty mild sanctioning, which is part of the reason that there haven't been any real substantial behavior changes from Russia. Yeah, we literally put sanctions on Russia in 2014. And guess what that was for? Does it have to do with Ukraine? It does. That was when they invaded Ukraine the last time. And so, you know, eight years later, they're back at it again. And again, this shows the problem with the sanctions. If Russia decides that Ukraine is more important to them than a visit to Disneyland, then um, it's not like Putin's going to have a hard time finding assets somewhere, even if we attack what he's got outside of the country. And going back to what we talked about before with sanctions potentially hurting the countries or organizations that have been implementing them, if we were to do something that might be more effective, like targeting their banking and energy companies, it would probably have some really reverberating effects on NATO members and Europe as a whole. Germany depends on a lot of Russian uh, oil and gas and things like that. So we're kind of left with options that are either ineffective or, well, reverberate and bounce back and hit a lot of the people, countries and organizations we value. Yeah. And that's the catch 22 that we're in, isn't it? Is in order for sanctions to be effective, they have to be multilateral, which means major world players all have to agree that they want to sanction X country or X leadership. They also have to be impactful. And when we're talking about a country like Russia, in order to impact Russia at scale, there's no country out there that can do that without also impacting themselves at scale. So the only countries that we can levy multilateral and comprehensive sanctions against 
are the kind of countries that we've already ostracized, that we don't have that big of a relationship with. And then you don't comply with the first standard that we laid out, which was sanctions work better against friends than they do against enemies. So it's very difficult to meet all three of those standards at the same time. Which is why I think it's really important to note that in the case of what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine, sanctions are not the only option that is being considered. And countries such as the United States, United Kingdom are talking about mobilizing troops and the potential for military conflict is starting to become a little more real by the day. Mm, Yeah, basically, (laughs) this is why we started the episode 2022, January, end of January, the world is over. It's a massive game of chicken. NATO is going to put a bunch of troops on one border. Russia is going to put a bunch of troops on the other border. They're going to start walking forward and they're going to wait to see who uh, who swerves first. But if nobody swerves, we're left with a uh, the car, the car crash that is World War Three. I don't even know how I'm going to like psychologically process a land war in Europe if it happens. <laughs> this is assuming that we don't go to war with China first, as per our Taiwan episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Military exercises in the Taiwan Strait. They keep happening. We are all just pawns in the Game of Thrones. (laughs) Well, if you have any thoughts on how we can avoid this world war, we'd be happy to hear them. Uh, We mentioned before we've got our Facebook and our Twitter at IndubitablyPod, or feel free to email us at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you on this topic or any topics. You could also as probably the most important reminder I can give you at the end of this episode, if you want to see that picture of Putin on a bear, you could also find it at those same places. That is really what people are coming for. <laughs> we know what the people want. Exactly. Cat, cat pictures and, and Putin. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, until next time, uh, we appreciate y'all listening and take care. We didn't say our names. Oh, yeah. I'm Josh. That was so, like, deflated. (laughs) Well, now it's a letdown. And I'm Kelly. (laughs) That was much more exciting. And this has been Indubitably. Bye.